1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Environmental Studies channel of the New Books Network podcast. I'm Padmapriya Vidya Govindarajan, and I'm thrilled to host my very first interview on this channel with Professor Julie Z about her extremely prescient book, Environmental Justice in a Moment of Danger, published in 2020 by UC Press. Professor Julie Z is a professor of American Studies and founding director of the Environmental Justice Project at the University of California, Davis. This is her third book, and she works on issues of environmental justice, public policy, and social movements. Um, I'm excited to have you on this podcast, Julie.
0: Thank you for the invite.
1: Yeah. Um, so, especially since this book was written in 2020, um, and at you know at the at the early like the really early moment of the pandemic, I'm hoping that we can talk about and introduce the book to our listeners, but we can also reflect on the last two and a half years since the book, and include some of your reflections on uh, the reception of the book as well as how you think about the arguments you put forward um, at the moment of publication, if that's okay with you.
0: Yes, there's um, a lot to um, think about. Um, So I wrote this book as a primer um, that Mm -hmm. was meant to introduce concepts from American studies and ethnic studies and sort of transnational critical studies around gender and indigeneity, you know, academic concepts with the social movements that many people are very familiar with. Um, For example, Flint, Michigan, or uh, Standing Rock, and um, different kinds of hurricanes. Um, And what I wanted to do is have a way to synthesize, to describe the movements and the actions, but also connect them to each other. Because we're in this moment where there is both um, a lot of knowledge of environmental injustice and environmental social movements more than I think, you know, ever in the career that I, have you know, have been working on this for 30 years. Um, at the same time, there's such a relentlessness that it's hard to sort of take a step back and say, okay, well, how are these things connected? You know, how, what is happening really? You know, what's the big picture? So I wanted to kind of zoom in into specific moments that I think were kind of like are I kind of iconic, but also have a big picture, um, you know, overview of how that these struggles were linked, are linked, um, in part because social movements were and are always doing these linkages themselves. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of academic work that um, and sort of terms like racial capitalism or extractivism. And, you know, I wanted to do a kind of explanation, a primer for people who are not, you know, in academia, but, you know, interested in movements and so on. And so the structure of the book is really focused on keywords and case studies, um, and makes an sort of overall argument about the centrality of environmental justice movements in our moment of danger. Uh, The chapters, you know, outline, it's pretty simple, the first chapter, and each chapter is also anchored by kind of a network or a coalition. So the first chapter looks at Standing Rock and, you know, oil, indigenous movements against oils and pipe oil um, extraction and pipelines, um, looking at the indigenous environmental network and, you know, these key terms of kind of settler colonialism and so on. The second chapter looks at um, activism um, and the violence um, in places like Flint, Michigan, and also the Central Valley region of California, where, where I'm based. And thinking about these ideas of sort of slow violence and fast violence, um, the politics of privatization and neoliberalism, and the resistance to those. Um, and the third chapter uh, introduces this idea of a non-naive radical hope. Um, opens with you know Hurricane Katrina. Um, I think that Hurricane Katrina, in a lot of ways, kind of opens up this moment um, that we're kind of like really living in. I mean, you can argue about what the start point of various, you know, things are, but for me, Hurricane Katrina was definitely like this this moment where a lot of people who hadn't really thought not the not the people who had been living the kind of racial violence or environmental um, pollution um, and toxicity, but you know, sort of the the broader you know community of people who weren't directly impacted. Hurricane Katrina was kind of that. Like, wow, you know, the U.S. government will just let people die, you know, let poor people Black people, old people just die. And there was that kind of moment of shock, which, you know, from from 2005, which um, now in a lot of ways, like nobody is, a lot of people aren't surprised in the way that, you know, it kind of felt surprising in 2005 for some people. Again, not the people who had always been experiencing it. Um, But I used Hurricane Katrina um, as kind of this opening salvo. I also talk about Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Um, But I wanted to talk about, you know, violence violence and um, spectacle disasters, but not leave it sort of the, you know, as like a grim tale of, um, you know, this is inevitable or this is about decline. So that chapter is really looking at the politics of climate um, justice movements um, and so on. So that's the kind then of, the anchor organizations for the two um middle chapters, the the Flint one and the um, Central Valley is looking at, I look at Community Water Center, which is an organization in Visalia in um, California that really works on water justice issues. And the third chapter looks at upros and climate justice uh, movements in New York City. So, um, So that's the kind of Arc and the, the intention of the book was a kind of book where people could, you know, pick it up and give it to somebody who's kind of interested um, in these topics and sort of try to understand, you know, I opened the book with some music as well I opened with a Stevie Wonder song but I, at some point I talk about Marvin Gaye you know that song what's going on. And so the role of culture. Um, and storytelling is very important part of the arguments of the book. But the book to for me is kind of a primer for people trying to understand like what, what's happening? You know, what, why, why is this happening and what's being done about it? And really foregrounding the important work that environmental justice movements and justice movements more broadly have been doing um, to basically resist um, the, the structures of settler colonialism, um, white supremacy, um, violence, um, and so on. So, um, that was the aim and the intent. Of course, you know, this book came out in 2020 and COVID just magnifies, you know, the, the, the problems that the book talks about. So, you know, we, we've seen that you know, the exposure to poor, bad air quality leaves people more, and people of color and poor people more vulnerable to um, deaths from COVID and so on. Um, in some of the work that I've done with um, Jackie Leung and Vivian Shaw. We're writing a piece on um, Marshallese diaspora um, Pacific Islanders who have the highest rates of COVID, um, and they are... their homelands have been um, erased, are being um, currently wiped away from sea level rise in the Marshall Islands, and also decades of U.S. military testing. Um, So their homelands are already, you know, bombarded by nuclear contamination, vulnerable to sea level rise. You know, their homelands, you know, that's why they're in the U.S. And then because of the sort of labor markets and segmentation, you know, they have the highest rates of covid um, in Oregon, um, certainly, and the Pacific Islanders more broadly have the highest rates of COVID. So, you know, COVID just magnifies um, these these um, injustices and these inequalities. Um, and what I think the biggest one of the big lessons from environmental justice movements is that you know everything is connected. There is no separation between environmental, social, um, or racial um, justice um, and injustice. And the, the biggest lesson you know, that I always take from environmental justice movements is that the fight is what is really central. Um, it's about like rejecting the nihilism and the cynicism, which it's very easy if you follow sort of the climate science to kind of fall into pits of despair. So that's why the book really wanted to end with this idea of hope, but not in a sort of you know, techno utopian, like we'll we'll find a techno fix and everything will be fine. We can just get back to a new normal. You know, we've talked about this, you know, with COVID. Like, you know, what does the new normal look like? What is the the recovery? Well, you know, justice movements say it's not what it was. That's not justice. You know, we want to remake things in a different model that rejects the institutions and the hierarchies that we have already been living and dying under. So I don't know if that that gets to what your questions were.
1: No, thank you for that. That is such a capacious summary and and it really gets into the heart of several issues that you raise in the book and your book like you're saying is is it's such a remarkable and it's such a thoughtful appraisal of environmental justice and it's it's wonderfully readable so it's good to know also that you envisioned your audience to be somebody who can pick up the book if they want to learn about environmental justice and learn about environmental justice in its most intersectional form where people come together and think about these issues across um, different of course the spectrum of what can be considered um, environmental justice so thank you so much for that summary of the book um if i could maybe then probe you a little bit on sort of this this uh non-naive, hope that you're talking about right this this politics of hope that you're offering Mm -hmm. it's wonderful and it's radical and I wonder what it is that you ground that hope in especially since you point to the the amount of data that we're inundated in and all of these toxic stories and stories of violence and environmental violence where is your politics of hope grounded in then where does one ground that non-naive politics of hope?
0: For me, the grounding in the hope is in the resistance struggle. So, you know, this is kind of a social movements um, question, which is how, you know, how successful are the social movements? And one way to measure them is, do they win on the campaigns that they're fighting on? You know, and you know, to be perfectly honest, a lot of the environmental justice, you know, organizations do not win, you know, they, they, they quote, lose more often than they win. But I don't see that as the metric, um, in part, because it sets such a high bar for what success is. Um, And so, you know, and, and when all of the institutions and power structures are like, you know, tipped against them, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I think it's really unfair to be like, okay, well, they're only successful if they win on, you know, rejecting every, you know, campaign, you know, if they win every campaign they, they fight for, you know? And so um, for me, you know, I think about um, the, the continuing fight you know, and the rejection of despair as the hope itself. And so, you know, if you look at climate justice movements, there is so much creativity and culture and um, the youth movements in particular um, that use like satire and storytelling to sort of change the culture and the consciousness um, the kind of hearts and minds, you know, argument. Um, and I think that's where I, you know, whenever I start to sort of go into my, my pit of despair, you know, I think about the, the young people who are rejecting, you know, the idea that there is no future. You know, I mean, there's a, you know, there's a lot of emerging research saying that young people don't want to have kids because they can't imagine a future. And my colleague, Sarah Jaquette-Ray wrote a book called Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, where she talks about how in her environmental studies class, you know, the, a lot of the young people literally can't imagine a future. You know, they, they're just like stuck in, uh, they get mired in a sort of, you know, apocalyptic depression. Uh, and you know, there's no, there's no hope. You know, but um, I think there's a lot of people who are making this argument that, you know, cynicism and nihilism, you know, that is actually very political. So if you kind of defang people's ability to organize because everything's like game over, you know, guess what that who that benefits, you know, it's the ex- it benefits the existing power structures to keep the, the, the societies, you know, running the way it is do you know what I mean? And so yeah. where I where I get hope is in you know young people saying, you know, no, we reject that. You know, we reject, you know, we reject your model of, you know, it, that it has to be like this. Um, and, you know, it's young people, it's also indigenous people um, saying, look, you know, this this is where, you know, social movements like, you know, the indigenous um, principles of just transition, you know, or the, the um, Black Lives Matter, you know, statements about the Green New Deal, you know, their vision is so capacious. And so it's not just like, okay, well, we need, you know, society to look like the way it is, but just be not gas-based. Like if we had a solar version of the current society, you know, you know there's, there's a line of thinking that says, okay, well, that's, that's a good transition, right? That's a carbon transition. And there are um, justice movements, environmental justice movements that say, no, that's not actually the goal. You know, we don't want just like a solar version of, a, of the society we live in now. Do you know what I mean? So what are the mm-hmm. models that we look at um, for what that society looks, at, um, looks like. And so for me, you know, the, I've, a lot of the work I've done in the last two years since the book has been written has been you know, um, thinking about um, climate justice, uh, just transition, um, movement generation, which is a collective based in Oakland, has this remarkable set of um, uh, principles of just transition where oil is one component of the extractivism. You know, it's the most obvious and it's the one that people understand, but it's also about um, how we value caring and economy and sort of social relations. Um, And so I think, you know, that I'm very um, compelled by that um, vision as well. So um, that's to me where the non-naive radical hope is. It's from Black and Indigenous people and young people who are saying, you know, not only are we not okay with Mm -hmm. the way things are, we actually have a vision of how we want it to be you know, non-hierarchical, not based on individualism, based on solidarity, um, and so on, so.
1: Thank you. That's that's such a wonderful place to locate your hope in, and I think one of the most hopeful parts of the book um, that you talk about is in your invocation of these cultures of solidarity. And, and while you say that you you end on this note and you end on these cultures of solidarity and, and offer this politics of hope, I think you also draw on it and, and weave it throughout the book, which was very beautifully done. Like in the, uh, the very first chapter, you draw on uh, Robin Kelly's definition of solidarity and solidarity as made in struggle. And mm-hmm. in this process, um, you kind of revisit this as a key theme throughout your book. And like you say, in imagining together uh, this process of another world existing, and you say, however, temporarily in your summation of, um, in your summarization of Standing Rock. And so I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to that. What are the key components that emerge as, as crucial to this imagination and this coming together? And what is the temporality of such a solidarity in the context of environmental justice?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that that idea of um, the solidarity and the, the um, radical politics and um, the kind of, you know, the things kind of come up and then go back down. And, you know, you, you've seen a lot more of this, you know, during COVID, like many more people are understanding what, you know, the politics of mutual aid or food, you know, food um, justice look like in terms of, you know, community free ch- fridge and, you know, kitchens, that kind of stuff. Um, I think that, you know, for me, I'm guided by what the movements do themselves. So, you know, in the book, like there are, um, you know, coalitions that go from, you know, Flint to Standing Rock, you know, and then to people who the movements themselves are heavily, heavily networked. You know, and so the water justice people in, you know, California are talking to folks in Michigan and so on. So, you know, these it's in some ways what I'm doing is just reporting um, or recounting what's happening on the ground you know, and those are beautiful, um, moments that have deep meaning. Um, and, you know, you know, folks coming from Palestine to, you know, have solidarity with folks at Standing Rock and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, that, so there's, I think one of the things that, um, you know, I don't really talk about this, like, in the book, but one of the things I'm trying to think about is, like, what the desire for power and domination, like, you know, come from, and part of it has to do with, like, control and sort of top-down, you know, hierarchy, um, and so, you know, this this different model, this decentralized, like, temporariness, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the politics of Occupy and so on, but, like, it's it's less about control and, you know, there's a single leader or there's a single, you know, visionary, and so on. And so, you know, like the Climate Justice Alliance and then there's different climate justice networks. They they have this like idea of like many marbles in a bag. Do you know what I mean as opposed to like mm-hmm. one big like this this is the thing that everybody goes, you know, for. Do you know what I mean? Um, but that like it has to be local, contextual, and so on, but that there's strength in the sort of many, um, the many local struggles as well. Do you know what I mean? And so for me, that's where um a lot of the, the, the solidarity comes in. It's like understanding that these things are they're temporary, they're contextual, they can, they can come together and then sort of dissolve. You know there's there's a little bit of an impermanence you know to it um which you know is a it's a different model of like relating and sort of like building long-term you know um institutions that kind of hold on their their power you know um but it is a power um as well um it's a power and, and you know and, and you could get the metaphor too from like you know Literal power, you know, in energy systems. Instead, of, instead of having like a gigantic nuclear power plant, you know, it's like many decentralized, you know, um, community-based solar panels or something. Do you know what I mean? Or like, you know, I, somebody told me once that you can actually like harness the energy from kids running in a back in in like an elementary school. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like that can power schools too. Do you know what I mean? And so like, you know, energy is, is not just a metaphor. You know, it's actually like a practice. And like our energy systems like, you know, big and dominating as opposed to like many, you know, many little parts. Do you know what I mean? Um, but the little parts are actually stronger, you know, as a whole. So I think that's um, that's what, what I'm I'm very interested in too.
1: So. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. This, uh, where it, it's very much about, imagining and the possibilities that exist within imagining not necessarily sustaining it in a particular way or it's taking a particular form that adheres to these existing structures of power and these existing structures of uh, domination. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I wonder though, if at this moment, we can think a little bit about what you conceptualize as a moment of danger, because you're also thinking and you point to these moments of danger and you very much point to this idea of like big things like a hurricane or, or disasters as you conceptualize them. But you also talk about solidarity, a sense of community and imagination that is a long time in the making. So I wonder if then we could speak to what these moments of danger are and how they're experienced by these people through everyday processes and how these, these alternate imaginings are sustained through the sight of the everyday, which kind of seems to be implicit in all of your chapters.
0: Yeah, and that's why I it was very important um, to start with indigenous struggles for environmental justice. And, you know, I mean, I, I am a, an American studies professor, I'm grounded primarily in the US, but, you know, and of course, um, environmental justice is a transnational movement. It, it has been from its founding, I mean, depending on when you find the founding, but it's always been, you know, in solidarity with, you know, um, groups in South Africa and Brazil and so on. So the US is, you know, the environmental justice is not a US only, but it's the, the, the part that I'm most familiar with is the US centered environmental justice who are who are always deeply transnationally networked. But the environmental justice uh, movement has always been you know, the indigenous um, voices have always been front and foremost um, to that struggle. And I think uh, for me, you know, coming from the US, and, you know, I know it's different in different places, but, you know, indigenous voices and African American voices, you know, live and continue to live and thrive, um, even when the systems in the US around settler colonialism, and, you know, afterlives of slavery, you know, basically demand or, you know, their active death and, you know, denial of their, um, you know, what Kyle White indigenous philosopher calls like collective continuance, the right to survive, the right to live, the right to thrive. You know, everything in the U.S. um, historically and, you know, institutionally has been structured around the, you know, the taking of land from indigenous people and the taking of labor from African Americans. And, you know, if you, you know, Communities of Indigenous and African American people have rejected, f- have struggled like from the very moment. You know, and, uh, some could say environmental justice is as old as five hundred years. You know, that's what the the principles of environmental justice say. You know, for five hundred years. You know, I think that's like in the preamble. Do you know what I mean? So some could say, and some argue that environmental justice is a five hundred year old movement. Um, and so you know, the what for me the the. Uh, centering the voices of indigenous people and African-American people, you know, who continue to live and survive and thrive and create, you know, that's where um, I get my um, hope from, because, you know, as a, you know, as a person who is, you know, um, descended from immigrants, you know, and working class people, you know, I mean, I have a different relationship, you know, to this. And so part of it is understanding, you know, as a descendant of, you know, working class, you know, immigrants who had their own, like, you know, traumas politically, and so on, you know, people don't come to the US, like, without their own politics and, and you know traumas and so on. But you know, for me, understanding what the struggles are and what the stakes are, um, as somebody who was born in the US and has US citizenship, but you know, did not, you know, experience this struggle, you know, and experience these histories has been, you know, an important part of my learning and, you know, sharing as well. So, you know, I think for me, grounding um, indigenous and black um perspectives on this, it was like key, you know? Um, and also, you know, the gender, you know, component of this is like threaded everywhere. You know, this is a lot of story of, of um, indigenous women, women of color, you know, um, young people, um, Standing Rock was, you know, the struggles at Standing Rock were, um, came into public eye in, in, ter- in part because there were indigenous, you know, teenage girls, that that had a run um, that that like made it very you know um, visible and also Ladonna um, Allard um, who you know made her home you know the place where the camps at Standing Rock were and so you know I think that um, those those uh, those perspectives are like absolutely central you know to thinking about like both the critique of what you know what are the problems but then also how do we get get out of them? How do we respond to them? How do we, you know, create um, cultures of community and solidarity? You know, when LaDonna Allard opened up her, her homestead and said, come, you know, she said, this is my, this is my home. You know, th- that Standing Rock is where my people were buried. This is a gravesite. It's not a place, you know, to be flooded, you know, because of, for energy. It is my home. And it can be, it will be your home you know, if, if come to my home and we can, you know, do this work together. And, you know, that was, you know, a, a kind of amazing, you know, moment um, where people kind of responded to that call. You know um which isn't to say it wasn't complicated there are there aren't fraught you know politics and you know all that kind of stuff you know it's not it, it's very important to not romanticize movements you know there people come to them with their own kinds of you know issues and baggage and you know it's it's really you know but it's through the struggle that you have to you have to struggle you know and including like struggling in relations with each other um Dallas Goldtooth, um, who is an organizer and Keep It in the Ground, um, and he is the, he's um, a very key leader in Indigenous environmental justice. He was very active at Standing Rock, and his father, Tom Goldtooth, is the founder of Indigenous Environmental Network. Um, he talks, um, he's also in a comic, an Indigenous comic with this um, group called the 1491s. You know, and that's obviously like a reference to 1492, right? And so they do a lot of like comedy. And so, you know, he has an interview that he did where he basically says, you know, there is no separation between the comedy I do and the, you know, organizing I do. You know, like comedy is how I process like the, he's you know, I think the quote is like the batshit craziness, like on the ground. Do you know what I mean? And so like the culture, you know, has to be a site where this stuff is worked through and it has to be, you know, um, you know, sometimes hopeful, sometimes satiric, sometimes, you know, um, mocking, sometimes angry, you know. Um, but that's how people can sustain themselves instead of just sort of burning out and disappearing and just being like, you know, I can't do anything. So what's the hope, you know, in any of it? So I, sometimes I talk a very long time and I forget what the question was. <laughs> so, anyway.
1: No, that's great. Like, you really walked us through this understanding of um, what the everyday looks like when you're sustaining some movement that lasts however many years or however many hundreds of years in this case, and what it means to incorporate these everyday processes and the range of emotions that come with it, the happiness, the laughter, the hope, alongside the struggle and and this sustained process of resistance. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if also then we could talk through Uh, how you conceptualize violence in this context, because within your conceptualization of violence, there's this capacity to bring together all these different movements and these different iterations of state violence that that affect different groups and different communities uh, in in varied ways, but in ways where they can come together and, and connect over how they're all being implicated within violence as a system. So maybe you could speak a little bit to uh, your understanding of slow violence as you uh, walk us through it in the book and also how you bring that back to your understanding of state violence.
0: Yes, that's a, that's a good question. You know, of course, slow violence comes from Rob Nixon. um, And Rob Nixon talks about slow violence as sort of the everyday, like accretion. And, you know, it's like, I think it's called, it's called slow violence and environmentalism of the poor. Um, It's really sort of a global South, you know, look at, and the kind of normalization of systems of, you know, global hierarchy and how they play out in bodies in, you know, bodies and communities around the world. Um, And so, you know, his idea of slow violence is so powerful and has been used by many many people. Um, I wanted to talk about it in relationship to fast violence which I I don't know if he comes up with this term or not but um, the idea uh, and that's why I put Flint and um, the Central Valley together because Flint in a lot of ways is exceptional. I mean it's exceptional because there was a start point because there was a state cover-up you know, of the lead poisoning, you know, and because there was actual like actors and a moment where you could say, OK, well, there was a moment when the water privatization led to lead poisoning. Like there's a very clear, you know, um, narrative arc of like villains and victims. Um and that's counterposed, you know, so basically, you know, just a summary, you know, the, the state hid um, the lead poisoning that came as a result of a privatization um, attempt that came from sort of Republican-led, you know, um, administration that said, look, we can save money if we privatize the system, even though our public system was fine the way it was. Um, and the, uh, when they did that, they basically, there was a thing that happened to the lead pipes and Flint, the water in um, Flint, basically was um, poisoned by lead and it was a mass lead poisoning of like a city of 100,000 people that was covered up Um, and it's a majority poor, um, slightly majority African-American city um, in a state that, you know, where the racial and class politics are very much around, you know, um, sort of uh, like Um, suburban versus black majority city, um, white Republicans, privatization proponents, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you, you put that Flint case, which got like a ton of, you know, attention in the news and, you know, the water um, systems, you know, people had to like get all of their water by bottled water and so on. I put it against, you know, the Central Valley region of California where I am in, and there's a lot of different environmental um, and toxicity problems. There's water, pollution from like arsenic and runoff from industrial agriculture there's a tear like the worst air pollution in the u.s is in the central valley in these tiny farm worker towns Um, there's a lot of um uh there's so like air and pesticide and water pollution um there's also a high concentration of prisons you know in the central valley region so in california there's over i think a hundred thousand people who don't have access to clean water at like now like, that's their everyday existence. So every time they need water, they have to go buy it, you know, and these folks are not rich, right? So, you know, the, so then I wanted to put these together because I wanted to think about, like, why one system is accepted as, like, an everyday reality, you know, as opposed to, like, this thing that, you know, is sort of shocking to people. So, you know, in Central Valley, you know, the idea of, like, having to get all of your water from bottled water is like the norm for many people from farm worker communities or in tiny towns that are not connected to water systems and so on. And again, they were engineered to be that way. So they were engineered by, you know, the the, um, government to sort of be unincorporated. So they will be right next to like a city and then deliberately not connected to the water system. You know, these are not like kind of accidents, like people kind of moved there and then, you know, et cetera. There was actually, you know, there's a lot of research about unincorporated communities like at by design and so on. So I was very interested in the idea of like slow violence and fast violence. And so, you know, something like lead poisoning, you know, is um, also connected to fast violence. You know, when I talk about police brutality um, and environmental violence in this other piece I wrote with my colleague, Lindsay Dillon, when we talk about Eric Garner and Freddie Gray, um, who are, you know, two of the hundreds of um, uh, people of color, Primarily black and Latinx men who are killed and murdered by the police, and so Eric Garner had asthma. He's he was in New York, and Freddie Gray um, had extreme lead poisoning from a child. You know, so so their deaths were galvanizing in the you know Black Lives Matter anti police brutality uprisings, um, but their bodies were already very vulnerable to the environmental and social violence. Um, because of their um, position as poor, urban, you know, Black men of color. Um, and so, you know, their, their violence, they die by fast violence, but they were already dying by slow violence, in other words. Um, and so what I was really interested in is, you know, why some violence gets normalized as just the way it is, as opposed to like some is, you know, like outrageous. Do you know what I mean? Like, why is some, you know, uh, concern for people? And then others are just like, oh, well, you know, there's, I was thinking about, you know, in the Central Valley, there's this place called Kettleman City, which there's been a very vibrant in, um, environmental justice movement for over 30 years. And it's the biggest um, PCB um, toxic uh, facility west of the Mississippi. And a few years ago, there was a cleft pallet controversy where, you know, I mean, it's a very small town. So there were a number of cleft palate births, and baby newborn deaths. And so the Kettleman activists said, you know, this is related to the, you know, facility, and there was a lot of organizing around it. And there was a state, Department of Public Health, you know, report that was done, which basically said, you know, said no, it it had nothing to do with the, you know, um, facility because, um, Kettleman City is as polluted as every other small town in the Central Valley. Do you know what I mean? And so to me, that kind of the the sort of cynicism around like, well, it's it's as polluted as every place else, so there's nothing special about it. You know, is the kind of acceptance of this politics of you know slow everyday violence. Um, And so, you know, this is where, uh, again, you know, environmental um, violence um, comes together with state violence. There is no difference. In other words, Um, the state is dependent on producing safety and security for some at the expense of others. And I think that's a difficult thing if you grew up like not knowing that or not experiencing it. And this going back to like COVID and that kind of um, what's changed since then, definitely, you know, I, I live in California, and we had terrible we have terrible wildfires always but there was one year where it just was like, you know, Everybody was experiencing wildfires and COVID. So that feeling of being, and, and there was um, police um, uh, organizing against police brutality. So there was like this, the, the summer where all this stuff was converging. And there was that sense of like, um, you couldn't go inside anywhere because of COVID. And you couldn't go outside anywhere. Because of the wildfires, but you needed to be outside because of the protests, Do you know, what I mean, and so and I think that in a lot of ways that idea of like, okay, feeling trapped is something that people of color and indigenous people have been living and dying under for such a long time. And it's only been in the last, you know, five years that you know people who were not directly impacted by this kind of violence can say oh this is what it feels like to feel like you have no control, that there are forces that are, you know, outside that are impacting your ability to like live healthfully and so on. And that feeling, um, you know, when it's channeled through the organizing, I think is like where it's like, that's where I have the hope. Do you know what I mean? Um, But But, you know, we need, like, to be analytic, but then also not be like, okay, well, everything is so overwhelming, so why bother? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And so I think that's where justice movements, like, come in. They say, yes, yes, this is big picture stuff. And yet, if we kind of say, okay, well, the state doesn't really need our labor anymore, or the state doesn't, you know, they've already taken our land and, you know, They still want more of it or they still want to pollute more of it. You know, like, oh, well, do you know what I mean? Um, Like that's environmental justice movements are saying, look, like you don't have the luxury of despair. (laughs) You know, you show up, you know, you support. That's everybody's job because we're all vulnerable. You know, we may have been the canaries in the mine, you know, to use a mining metaphor, um, but everybody suffers when we feel that like, that kind of sense of like entrapment. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think that the connections that you're making here and the connections that you're making in the book about these different forms of violence and how they're all entangled and how it is that in these moments of danger when different communities are all trapped by these systems in ways that they can't escape and therefore they experience what some communities particularly black and indigenous people um, have experienced all along and there's the mm-hmm. shared sense of, oh, is this how this feels? That's mm-hmm. so powerful. And I, and in your book, you say that um, the hashtag No DAPL solidarity meant offering bodies as a form of material support and as a witness to police and state violence. That's mm-hmm. so powerful because it's that's where you put everything that you have on the line, saying that this environmental justice is very much about freedom the way you mm-hmm. conceptualize and and everyone has to be free for it to actually be meaningful and for it to be freedom. And maybe in thinking also about what are the ways in which one can offer solidarity and what are the ways in which we can remember these different instances of state violence, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more about the practices uh, that, that are underway in keeping these memories alive and these memories of environmental justice and, and these stories alive, right? Because storytelling as a practice is, is a big part of your narrative of how these movements come together. So could you speak more to what those practices are like?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think storytelling um, is really a key part of environmental justice um, movements. And in the book, I I have this quote from Elizabeth Yampierre, who is an environmental justice, climate justice um, leader that I've known for, you know, 28 years. And she talks about how movements have to look like us, movements have to sound like us, they have to be joyful. You know, it can't just be like, you know, middle-class people in a room making policy. Like that's not what moves people like movements have to move people, you know? They have to be, you know, joyful and um, thoughtful and have to be a place where you want to show up. Um, and it can't just be like, you know, okay, here's another thousand page report about how, you know, like it's, it's almost too late. Do you know what I mean? You know, There has to be, um, that I saw this uh, quote, that said the best kind of, you know, activism is like straddling the line between like hope and anger. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, the movements, um, storytelling is a big part of the hopeful part of it, saying, look, our story matters. The state thinks our community doesn't matter, and, and we actually don't care what the state thinks, you know, but because we know that we matter, you know, we know that our stories are important. Um, We share the story of our elders, and so on. And so, you know, just to give you an example of a project I'm just finishing up um, with in Vallejo. I don't talk about this in the book, but it's something I'm working on now. Uh, I'm working with LaDonna Williams, who is um, an African-American environmental justice organizer in the Bay Area. And she, you know, has been, you know, doing work for a long time against PG&E and, you know, um, in, in San Francisco, but now in Vallejo. And Vallejo is um, a a poor city that, you know, um, went bankrupt, and it has the oldest military base on the West, um, in the West, you know, from like, basically before statehood you know, so 1859, um, uh, so it's like a, um, a city that's defined by sort of the military, um, and there is, um, and it's highly toxic in the South Vallejo, which is the majority black working class community, um, and there's also like a very, very horrific police murder problem, uh, m- police murder pattern you know, in Vallejo. And so um, I worked with her and her organization, All um, Positives Possible, um, on a storytelling project. And what um, that project was um, in part was, you know, telling the stories of Black Vallejo, you know, activists over time that have been fighting for justice. And some of that is justice, you know, within the military because um, the U.S. military was deeply segregated during World War II. So, you know, the military, um, base, you know, you know, Mare Island. You know, there's a lots of you know rioting against Black sailors. Um, it's very close to where there was um, a big expo- explosion in World War II, where you know the the Black segregated you know Navy personnel who were loading the munitions. Um, there was uh, uh, over 324 of them died. 200, and, you know, the vast majority of them were Black Black sailors, and the you know the sailors you know. Refused to go back because of you know this explosion that killed most of their you know peers and they were court martialed, you know for basically military um, you know not listening to orders, and so you know there are all these layers of violence you know violence by the military, violence by the police, violence by, you know, the oil refineries, you know, all this stuff. And so, you know, the project that we are working on is recounting um, the stories of the elders, um, including people like Pat Dotson, who, you know, is like, you know, over like, definitely over 80, you know, talking about these moments, you know, and growing up and these sort of moments of hope and survival, you know, over time. Um, So, you know, you, your storytelling is really important because if you just are like, okay, these terrible things happened and all of this, you know, all of this stuff is like basically primed for you and your community to be dead, you know, like how is that, what does that get you? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like that doesn't, you know, that doesn't move you very much. Do you know what I mean? But hearing the stories of, you know, El- black elders and women who have been fighting for, you know, decades around all of these issues, you know, that's kind of beautiful, you know, so storytelling is really, really important. And I think, you know, there's a lot of ways in which, you um, You know, I mean, I guess it depends on what worlds you live in. But, you know, if you do environmental work, there's a lot of ways in which environmental work gets fetishized as environmental science or environmental policy. And the storytelling component is often seen as kind of it's not real, it's not important, it's not like, you know, um, empirical. But, you know, I don't think a, I don't think that's true, and B, I would argue that it's actually more important because why else would people care? You know, I mean, we have all the data in the world about climate change, um, and parts, you know, and parts per million, or in diesel, and you know, there's a lot of empirical documentation, not just around climate, but around all kinds of you know issues, plastics pollution, you know, toxicity, and that does not move people. You know, what moves people is stories and visions of what of what can and should be. So, so you were talking about what
1: moves people. Um, it's the stories that moves people.
0: It has to be because the science isn't, <laughs> do you know what I mean? You know? I mean, not when it comes to environmental stuff.
1: Yeah, um, I hear you. I, I see, I, I see where, you're, where you're locating in, this, in these emotions and these, these sets of stories that actually push people into action. And, and motivate them to come together. That's so important and such a core part of environmental justice. And another thing that you talk about um, in, in the book about what it is that moves people is this idea of home and what it means to claim a particular place as home despite you know uh, evidence of that place as overly polluted, despite the fact that, that is a space of uh, extreme environmental violence. And so maybe, uh, could I ask you a little to go a little bit deeper into this question of home and what that means in the context of these movements?
0: That's a really um, important question, and I I really struggled um, with it in part because if you understand you know indigenous um, connection relations to home, it is different than you know other claims to home and homeland. You know, so when um, the I was um, struck by their, Robert Warrior, who was um a, who is an important indigenous scholar and he was past president of the American Studies Association. And he had a um like a keynote that called Home, Not Home. Um, and so, you know, he talks about the idea of home and how for Indigenous people, you know, it's different than people claiming home who are not Indigenous. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, as someone who is not indigenous, but you know, a descendant of um, immigrants and refugees, you know, we have a different relationship to that, to the U.S. And so, I, I'm trying to be very careful when I think about home to take um, the indigenous um, perspectives around home and uh, and settler colonialism critiques um, of settler colonialism really seriously. And I think it's really um, easy, you know, for people who are, you know, immigrants, especially or descendants of immigrants to be like, okay, well, that's not my problem. You know, my, my family came like, you know, I don't know. I've heard this from people who are like, well, my family came after slavery ended. So why is this my problem? You know, I, my family succeeded because we did X, Y, or Z, do you know, what I mean, and so, you know, and, and, you know, personally you know that was definitely a narrative that was like kind of pushed upon me and it's part of the broader culture right and so roxanne dunbar ortiz and ind- an important indigenous scholar you know just wrote a book called you know not a nation of immigrants you know and so it's really important again to ground um the idea of home um understanding that home is not the same for um, descendants of settlers, um, immigrants and refugees, and those who you know were forcibly brought to the. US. like people have a different relationship to home because of their trajectory um, around it. And so I think you know in part like you know refugees, have a different relationship of home, too, because, you know, a lot of times that has to do with, like, the impact of U.S. foreign policy and militarization and so on. So they have been forced out of their homes. And so, you know, immigrants and refugees have different relationships to each other. Um, And so I think, um, for me, you know, I don't, I'm not, um, like, attached to, like, the idea of home as a stable place. And that's what, you know, Robert Warrior argues, you know, that, that the idea of home, not home is something that has to be kind of held together. Home cannot be like a comfortable place where everything is always the same, you know, or, you know, romanticized and so on, which is actually, you know, I think goes back to the idea of like, trying to escape an idea of permanence and domination. Like home is where, you know, there is stability and comfort, you know, I think that's, that's an illusion, you know. Um, At the same time, you know, I think that, there is, um, we have to, you know, honor, you know, treaties to land rights that, you know, have been taken, and that like indigenous relationships to home and homelands is absolutely fundamental, um, especially like in this, you know, current political moment, and we, you know, with the Supreme Court basically chipping away um, indigenous land rights, in addition to like all other kinds of rights, you know, but I think part of the, um, the, the forces of, you um, uh, political um, domination are around this like idea of home as a fixed place of safety, you know, this kind of like island of safety while the world kind of falls apart, you know what I mean? Like we can have home, you know, on a on, on Mars, you know, like rich people can just escape their problems through, you know, um, technology or money. But, you know, the reality is nobody is safe from anything ever right and so what what can ground us in the face of that lack of safety and I think for me you know that idea like home has to be both grounded but also not fixed does that make sense I don't know I'm I'm a little bit like kind of I don't talk about this in the book it's just things I've been thinking about since writing the book
1: Yeah, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. And I think we can also uh, talk a little bit more about the projects you're working on. Or or I I was going to ask you anyway what your projects are right now and what it is that you continue to work on. So before we go into that, maybe I can also ask you um, how capaciously are you thinking about this concept of home? Because uh, when you're not just talking about home or you're not just talking about claims um, in this book, just in the context of land, right? Like there's a whole section where you talk about uh, the indigenous approach towards these movements and and the positioning of indigenous people as water protectors. And I wonder how beyond human or or what multi-species angles there are in your conceptualization of home or perhaps in your future projects. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this is why, you know, at Standing Rock and, you know, other indigenous movements against, you know, oils and pipelines, you know, there's this idea that like, this is not just land that can be exploitable. You know, this is not just resources that have like, you know, um, uh, uh, material value, you know, that, but that's why, you know, LaDonna Allard said, look, this is where my family is. And you don't, You don't do things to people's graves. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like you don't. And that's a kind of, I think, you know, many cultures, you know, honor their dead. Do you know what I mean? And so, you know, it's both multi-species, but also multi-temporal, you know? I mean, it's... You know, it's it's home is a lot of things. It's land. It's also community. It's memory. It's connection. Um, it's so many things, as you know, as well. And I and I told you this, but you know, I'll, you know, my mother is has terminal terminal cancer right now, and one of the things that you know she's a Buddhist, and I've been trying to understand you know what the Buddhist conception of death you know is, and you know, um, somebody said it was like beingness, beingness, and nothingness. You know, but it but it's actually, you know, if it's not like there isn't an end, you know, there's just you're connected, your physical body is in here. But, you know, there's a kind of, you know, um, there isn't like loss in sort of a Judeo-Christian kind of model, you know. And so, you know, I think um, my my mother, when, you know, she almost died in the hospital and she said, you know, in like, I want to go home. You know, and, you know, I said, Oh, do you mean the family home? And she was like, No, I want to go home. You know, and I, I am still kind of like processing what that that means, you know, and, and I said, you know, are you scared? And she's, No, I'm not scared. I just want to go home. You know, so um, home is like a really important concept, but I think it can mean many things. It can mean spiritual home. It can be, you know, the idea that like our ancestors are with us, you know, that, you know, the indigenous idea of like seven generations, like it's in the past, it's in the future. You think seven generations behind, you think seven generations ahead. You know, it's not looking at the temporality of like capitalism, which is like, you know, what the balance sheet looks like in five you know, um, five years or whatever, what's your payout. So you can like basically take the money and run, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Um, the temporality, the value system, everything is just completely different, you know? So if you think of your, you know, the earth as your home or the land as your home, you're not going to shit on it. Do you know what I mean? You're not going to like abuse it. You don't do that, you know? Um, and I think that that is a, an ethic that is, um, a very beautiful one. And, you know, that, that, that necessarily includes all species and and peoples and you know air land water um you know spirits do you know what i mean it's not just you know what you can know and um, you know empirically and what you can like the gold you can like stuff in your pockets do you know what i mean your your bitcoin or whatever do you know what i mean it's like a much more like broad idea of life and death and, you know, and 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 like the cycles um, of them, you know, in a way that sort of, you know, protects itself over the long haul. Do you know what I mean? Um, as opposed to just this extraction model, that's like, let's just do this, pick up and go and do it someplace else. You know, that's what colonialism and capitalism is. You know, let's just take, exploit, destroy, leave. <laughs> find someplace else to do the same thing. Do you know what I mean? Um, and if we have a different relationship to home, that's like, you know, based on like the ways people have been living and and surviving and dying, you know, we, we have a different relationship to the resources and the planet and the people um, than the ones that we have been taught to value. So I don't know.
1: Thank you, Julie, that was That was, thank you so much for sharing that. And that was such a, I'm in awe of your capacity to kind of suture in hope and optimism and depth in thinking about relations and in thinking about home and in thinking about feelings and emotions and and what it means to guard the land and the soil and see these things as not just resources, but as, as a part of our existence and a part of, who we are and what we need to protect and the futures we're working towards. So that was really well put in a very very generous way and generative way of thinking about home. Maybe just a a final question, maybe, Mm -hmm. um, would be, I guess, what can we expect to read of your work next? What are you working on in terms of things that we can read a book or another project, perhaps?
0: (laughs) I mean, until until I until I pass, and I don't know when that will be, the only thing I'm working on, I mean, I've been working on environmental justice, like different forms of it for like thirty years. And, you know, of course, environmental justice and climate justice are all I'm going to do until I until my until I go, you know. Um, in part because I think, you know, the environmental justice and climate justice, you know, are are what I know, what I care about, what I love, what I what I'm afraid of You know, for and so on. And so, you know, in um, I am uh, working on a book on climate justice as freedom, um, in part because I think, you know, I went through a phase where I was really thinking about violence and death. And then I just had to shift and I said, okay, well, I can't always be talking about environmental violence and death. You know, this is this is part of the shift, you know, myself of being like, okay, well what's the thing that movements are working for, you know? And and part of it is this idea of freedom. Um and, you know, what the future looks like that is not just about like the like fighting in a negative sense. Um and so, you know, the work on climate justice as freedom. Um I I really like um Libby Anker. She wrote a book about um ugly freedoms where she talks about, you know, the the idea of freedom as being um, you know, basically dominated in the U.S. political like, landscape as, you know, like the freedom to not wear a mask or the freedom to, you know, buy yourself to safety or, you know, like an individualist consumption-based, you know, sovereignty, freedom. And what social movements do, she argues, and, you know, I'm sort of picking up, you know, her, her arguments in that book is that, you know, social movements and climate justice movements are saying, no, freedom is not Around individualism, it's around community. Freedom is not about ownership; it's about you know care. Um, freedom is not about this; it's about these other things. You know, so I think you know this this new book is really kind of talking about climate justice as a freedom struggle. You know, and what does that look like? Um, and what are the um, uh, what are the visions you know that are that are regenerative and beautiful? Um, because that's what we we need. Because the Earth and the world, you know, and people and communities, you know, are beautiful. Um, and you know, it's just the systems are don't support that. So how do we how do we shift so that we are building back the world as a beautiful place? You know sometimes I'm in like the redwoods and I just look up and I'm like, the world is beautiful. And I don't mean, you know, to fetishize like nature as like a place where people are not and, you know, all that stuff, but the world is a beautiful place. And, you know, why are we like trashing it and having the oceans be covered in plastic? Do you know what I mean? And so, you know, climate justice, I think movements are, they fight the bad things and they envision the good ones always simultaneously. So any work I do from now on, Will be, you know, always, I mean, it always has been, but, you know, very focused on this idea of climate justice as a beautiful movement for freedom. So,
1: yeah, thank you. I think that's a wonderful note for us to end on. And thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview. And for those listening, I cannot recommend enough that you pick up a copy of Environmental Justice in a Moment of Danger and um, read the book while we await what it is that you. Um but
0: oh next. Last oh last thing I was gonna say was that the royalties for this book go to Two of the organizations that I write about in the book. So, you know, um, a lot of you know, this is like about, you know, how do you practice this on an everyday front? Do you know what I mean? Like, how do you share the knowledge and the resources and sort of direct out and build? You know, it's always about um, growing and building things. It's not about your own ego and you know all that kind of stuff. Do you know what I mean? So, everything I do is always in response to movements. It's to build movements and it's for movements. Um, so anyway, thank you um, for the space to talk about this. I, I appreciate your flexibility.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for also telling us about that. I, I really appreciate your commitment to practice uh, Praxis as well. Um, thank you. Thank
0: you. Take care. Bye. Bye.